Live from the Empire of Lies. It's time for the show that brings you the truth behind the news. Today is the Truth Tuesday, joined by guest host Jason Goodman on The Backstory. How you doing, Jason? I'm great, Lee. I was trying to get us a special guest for the commemoration of the JFK assassination, but unfortunately, Robert Groden, he's very, very busy, obviously, around this time. Maybe he'll join us in the future. Okay, that's great. And, you know, it it is JFK time, but next year's a big one, I would say, because next year... Is ends in a three. Yeah. Was it 60, 70 years? Yeah, no, 80. Exactly right. What a, it's a nice 70. even number. Well, we got a great show today, Jason. Coming up in the first hour, a person who I do not see restored yet on Twitter. Who? And we'll talk to him about that. The great Jim Hoft from Gateway ah, Pundit. As far as I know, he's still off Twitter. Me we'll too. We'll talk about Elon this in a second. And then in the second hour, we're joined from the Center for Immigration Studies, the great Mark Krikorian. So that's the show today. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. Jason, take us out to the boom. This is the backstory. So, Jason, you know, I guess we have to talk about Elon. So, Elon, I will say he's done some things right and some things I'm not as thrilled with. And I think that's actually what people should have expected. Anyone making him out to be a savior or a god who's going to come down and save everybody from the threats of free speech. He was never that. But there's no reason to demonize him. He's done some good things and some bad things. What say you, Jason Goodman? I agree that he's done some good things and some bad things, but my collective position on Elon Musk now is vastly more negative than it was prior to this foray into Twitter. And that is because even though he wasn't under oath when he said this, he's certainly allowed to lie if he wants. But it is my perception that he has shown himself to be a liar because he said he's a free speech absolutist and that as long as people say things that are in the context of the law, it should be allowed. Now, yesterday, he told us because of a personal tragedy, which is admittedly terrible, my wife suffered a miscarriage, you've told us about the loss of your child. These are terrible things, I'm not denying that. But for Elon Musk to then, on the basis of a personal tragedy, say I'm holding this against Alex Jones for an arbitrary reason, and he's not allowed black back on the platform because I don't like him, just shows that Elon Musk is the same as Jack Dorsey and Parag Agrawal creating an environment where you have freedom of speech if you're friends with Elon Musk and no freedom of speech if you're not. So, yeah, I I agree with that. 
And I think that we talked about the Alex Jones decision yesterday. I think that's the worst decision. And also the way he decided it. Yeah. Basic, no explanation at all at first. Just no. Right. But I think it was also you know, not I mean, strategically because if he had said, hey, I want Alex Jones back on, but big, mean Apple and Google have told me if I do that, we can't be on the platform. So go stop buying Google and Apple stuff and give them a load of hell. That would have at least been strategic and allowed him to save face. He didn't even do that. He wants to own it that he hates Alex Jones and he wants you to know that. I did not like that. Elon Musk's stock is falling in my book. Yeah. So, yeah, but, yeah, what do you think of Trump being back on, though? Well, I think that that was the right thing to do. But again, I think everything that Elon Musk is doing is calculated to benefit Elon Musk. I think that I read a bit of some of the contractual obligations that Trump has with Truth Social. And, you know, he could uh, dance between raindrops and have some activity on Twitter prior to, I think it was June or there's some date in 2023 where his exclusivity with Truth Social becomes dramatically less than what it is right now. And so he could go back to Twitter. But from Donald Trump's standpoint, from a business standpoint, as far as Truth Social is concerned, it makes no sense. And from a personal standpoint, as far as being Donald Trump, it makes no sense. Because right now, Twitter wants Trump. Trump is in demand. Trump loves that. And he knows the value of that. And keeping himself in demand is going to be more valuable than going on there and going back to what already was. Secondarily, the argument is, oh, no, Trump needs to be on Twitter so that if the mainstream news puts out stories against him, he can counteract it. He can still do that on Truth Social. He could have IamDonaldTrump.com and just post things on there. As long as you know where he is, and he's consistently posting there. Why would he want to use somebody else's brand and build up Twitter and just say, screw Twitter, it's dead. Everybody come to Truth Social where I am. I think he's going to do that. Well, let me tell you who's not a good, 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 going to go to Truth Social. Guaranteed. AOC. Yeah. Right. As an example, AOC is right. on Twitter. And on Twitter, Donald Trump can engage AOC in a conversation. AOC is not going to True Social. Nancy I disagree. Pelosi. I disagree. Nancy Pelosi will be irrelevant by then anyway. And as far as AOC goes, Trump can antagonize her from True Social. And I bet Trump could get AOC to respond on True Social quicker then AOC could compel Trump to get back onto Twitter. And I think Trump would make her look so stupid while doing it, it will be great. I don't know. I just don't think Trump is going back to Twitter. I think each day when he does things like he's done do, do to you Alex think Jones. The true social will get better and more useful. Because I'll tell no. you who else is not going to true social. Me. I'm not right. going to waste my time at the no, Trump I agree. platform. It's bad. So it is bad. It's a poor platform. The software works badly. It's run by Devin Nunes, who a lot of evidence that I've seen causes me to believe he's not somebody to be trusted. They've been suppressing my reach on there. I, I can't get past 125 followers. Devin Nunes's largely unknown lawyer, who happens to be representing a party that's suing me, has over 4,000 followers. Nobody's ever heard of the guy. I'm doing broadcasts every day to tens of thousands of people. I think that all of these platforms are run by liars 
who are deceiving us. And I think one thing that's quite interesting about Donald Trump is that he's figured out how to play them in the case of Twitter and Truth Social. Well, play them in what sense? In the sense that Adam Sharp, who was the head of news, government, and politics at Twitter for many, many years, left in 2016 and gave a speech in 2018 where Adam Sharp said that Donald Trump became the most effective Twitter user in 2016, and here's what his opponents will need to do to defeat him. So uh, a lot of people felt that Donald Trump had become, and it's the trolling. It's what Elon Musk is doing now, right? Everyone's saying, ooh, he's Trumpian. He is running the room on Twitter. He's like, I, I tell you what, I went to a James O'Keefe book signing, and I'm not making any kind of comment about Milo other than this. I don't know the guy personally. I'm not judging him. At that party, Milo was running the room. He was like the MC. Is very charismatic, enjoyable to laugh with and talk to and sit there and have a glass of wine while he's running around doing his Milo thing. And that is what Trump was doing on Twitter. That is what Musk is doing on Twitter right now. And Trump is getting money to give his name to Truth Social. That's all a bunch of investors who want to invest with Trump. And he's trying to sort it out, yeah, to get his message out, of course, but also to benefit Trump. And I'm not saying that to criticize him. I'm just observing it. Okay, so I want to get Al Killer. I see you out there, and I'm going to get you by one place clip first. This is, we talked about yesterday, CBS was admitting that the Biden laptop was real. Yeah. And this is a big deal. And yes, I thought it is. I'd play, I thought I'd play what CBS actually said. So let's get that. Hit it. This is CBS. Republicans take control of the House. Hunter Biden, the president's son, will be a target for investigations. And that means data from a laptop reported to belong to Biden could be crucial to the investigatory process. CBS News has obtained its data, not through a third party or political operative, but directly from the source who told us they provided it to the FBI under subpoena. And we commissioned an independent forensic review to determine its authenticity. Senior investigative correspondent Catherine Harris joins us now with what we found. Catherine, I'm very interested. Good morning. Good morning, Tony. These House Republican investigations are coming, and that could be a challenge for the White House as we head into 2023 and 2024. The laptop data we had analyzed showed no evidence it was faked or tampered with. Digital forensic investigator Mark Lanterman was previously a member of a Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force. There was one thing that got my attention, and that was a voicemail. That voicemail, apparently from Joe Biden during his son Hunter's drug addiction, is one of many findings Lanterman used to authenticate what is believed to be Hunter Biden's laptop data. You're confident, based on your analysis, this is Hunter Biden's data and that it's real? Yes. 
This Delaware computer shop is where the laptop's backstory begins. Their records indicate in April 2019, Hunter Biden took his laptop in for repair, but never paid. After 90 days, the store considered it abandoned. Then in December 2019, the FBI subpoenaed the store's owner to turn over the computer and a portable drive of its data. Whatever happened to Hunter? During the 2020 election, versions were widely shared by Republican operatives, including Rudy Giuliani. We have the entire hard drive. But questions were raised about whether additional files were added to those versions. Then-candidate Biden labeled the laptop controversy disinformation. What this he's accusing me of is a Russian plan. CBS News approached the lawyer for the computer repair shop owner to cut through the noise. We've always had uh, one clean copy. And obtained a copy of what he says they provided the FBI under subpoena. Then we went to Minneapolis for an independent analysis. Were you paid by CBS or anyone else to analyze the data? No. No. I wouldn't want anyone to think that someone bought our opinion. Around the corner at the Legion in what we call our imaging room. Lanterman and his son, Sean, both digital forensic experts, recovered images of credit cards, a driver's license, social security number. Just the sheer volume of what we're dealing with, it would be difficult, uh, if not impossible, to fabricate. And explained how files built up over years. It accumulated over time, which is consistent with normal, everyday use of a computer. There's some reporting about folders being added. We have read these um, articles. We don't see that. So I believe that that's because we have a more pristine copy. The laptop and its contents have fueled Republican interest in Hunter Biden's business ventures. Hunter Biden was working with China. Nationals. They say this May 2017 email outlining a proposed business deal with a Chinese energy firm is one reason why they have questions about whether President Biden benefited. We're prepared to subpoena Hunter Biden. We would certainly hope that he would want to come before the committee and clear his name. Two of Hunter Biden's former business partners, including Tony Bobolinsky, who received the email, told CBS News the 10 held by H for the big guy is shorthand for 10% held by Hunter for his father. After the email became public in 2020, the author of the email told the Wall Street Journal Joe Biden was not involved. The author has not responded to CBS News's questions. Mr. Biden has consistently denied knowledge of his son's work or financially benefiting from it. I've never spoken to my son about this. Last month, Senator Chuck Grassley wrote this letter alleging bank records and financial data showed that Hunter Biden and the president's brother profited from a $5 million wire from a company connected to CEFC, the Chinese energy firm. They're going to look at every part of the Joe Biden administration. Doug High is a Republican strategist. A lot of this is also going to be aggressive on Hunter specifically. We're going to hear a lot about the laptop. Who profited? Was the law broken? Was it not broken? After two years of scrutiny, the laptop has not produced evidence President Biden directly benefited from his son's business deals. If there's dirt there, that will dirty him up. If not, those attacks can backfire. The White House declined to comment. Hunter's lawyer did not address our specific questions about the data or the CBS forensic review, but said there have been multiple attempts to hack and fax 
attempt to distort and peddle misinformation regarding Mr. Biden's devices and data. And at no time did any individual, including the IT repair shop owner, Mr. McIsaac, have Mr. Biden's consent to access his computer data or share it with others. The lawyer also referred us to Hunter Biden's memoir, where the president's son slammed the despicable opposition that purported to have a laptop belonging to him. So you're an astute media analyst, Jason. What did you think of CBS's report? I think it contained one of the most hilarious statements from an expert witness I have ever heard. He said that the sheer quantity of material made it difficult to fabricate. You would need so many hookers and so much crack to fabricate that, Lee. It's got to be real. Well, that's true, and I'm low, but <laughs> exactly. I'll point out what he's talking about is the laptop, aside from emails and stuff like that, has right. credit card receipts, has right. all his bank receipts. And do you know what struck me listening to that report? The real scandal here is that the FBI It seems to me, let me make a statement and see if you agree with this, Jason. There is overwhelming evidence that this was real. And it's not just emails. It's also, like they say, receipts. So the FBI had this laptop for a while. Mm -hmm. And why did not the FBI make a big deal about this? Why did not the FBI come out and say, this is clearly real? Also, CBS does not want to say it's real. They want to say, well, there are indications that it's real. And there's, you know. Yeah. Well, they had qualifiers there at the end, caveats. They said that at no time did the store have his permission. And they also, they said things that were false. They said that. Hunter didn't pay for it, so the store considered it abandoned. No, every single state has laws that are generally referred to as mechanics liens, where if you bring your car to be repaired and just you can't leave it there for three years and come back and get it after 90 days, if they've made a certain number of proper attempts to get you to get your car and you don't answer or you refuse to pay, it becomes their property to pay them for the work that they did. That guy, John Paul McIsaac, was his. I, I, I haven't seen their, you know, paperwork that you when you turn your computer. But I'm sure I have. that I'm sure you sign over. Yeah, the, the boilerplate computers. You can't bring your computer to be fixed without giving the place the right to look at your computer data, right? Correct. Correct. You sign your name on the thing, and that thing on the back of it has a boilerplate contract that you go to any You Break iFix or Rossman Repair Group or Apple or anybody, and this guy, somewhere in the course of when this laptop came out, I've seen the document from his shop that says that this is the standard, you know, and it is. It's like this is this is a this is a no-brainer. I mean, go park your car in a parking garage and come back in four months having not paid the bill and ask them where your car is, they'll have sold it. And it's you can't sue them. That's their right. Also, the House GOP, Comer and the House GOP made it very clear this is not about Hunter Biden. Right. And 
You notice they brought up Hunter Biden all throughout their report. This is about Joe Biden. And there is evidence of Joe Biden getting money. A witness saying it, right? Well, here's what I wanted to add about that. And thank you for bringing it up because you're right. That's the other thing that they said that was wrong. They said there's no evidence on there that Joe Biden did it. Well, that's not true. What they're saying is nobody had, like I can have a piece of evidence sitting on a table and you look at it and say, well, I don't know what that is. But when I explain to you that like this is a document that was filed on September 6th and contains a list of videos. And this is evidence that the filer did something illegal because the request from the court asking for a list of videos wasn't submitted until nine days later. So even though it's not clear just from looking at it, when I explain this scenario to you, this is empirical evidence that this person who filed this thing nine days before it was asked for must have somehow had information about what was going to be asked for. So what they really should have said on CBS is nobody has taken this evidence and made a court case that has persuaded a court sufficiently that this evidence proves beyond a reasonable doubt that Joe Biden engaged in crimes. That hasn't happened yet, but the thing is replete with evidence that Joe Biden has broken a lot of laws. Or the case, or they could have said, the FBI has had this laptop for a couple of years, and the FBI, for some reason, has not filed any charges. Or even looked at it. Or, or found any of this stuff that some computer... See, well, what that well, guy said that rings they, true to me, Lee? I think they did look at it. And right. They looked at it and said, we better not investigate this. Right. Right. The, the thing right. that rings true so, about that first comment that made me laugh is that what they're talking about is, like, if you went and it's just like computer graphics, the amount of micro information that you're putting on your phone simply by walking around, buying stuff, emailing, texting, whatever, it creates a timeline and a flow that if you look at it will make sense and that if you tried to fabricate it, just like when you try to make a digital 3D model of Jason Goodman, it might be the best one anybody ever did. But there's going to be little things that you see that you say, well, wait a minute, that's not right. Same thing with this kind of huge accumulation of data on somebody's laptop over the course of two years. So let's go to calls, 202-521-1320. The great killer of owls, owl killer. What's on your mind? Okay, owl killer is gone. He's flown the coop. Oh, no. I'm mixing my bird metaphors, but he'll be back. (laughs) So uh, we took too long with the Biden laptop. But I think it's important to hear how CBS is continuing to obfuscate on the Hunter Biden laptop story. Yes. Yeah. Running interference, right? This is this is baby steps, right? It's like somewhere somebody has put together a course on how to handle an unmitigated disaster. Let's say your cryptocurrency exchange has just exploded and you don't want to admit that you've been involved in serious criminal wrongdoing. Here's how you drip out small amounts of information over the course of a week to soften people up for the blow. And they're doing the same thing with Joe. They're realizing now there are going to be congressional hearings where they talk about this laptop. And they're still busy trying to convince everybody that suppressing the story from the laptop shouldn't result in anybody at Twitter being brought up under criminal charges and shouldn't result in anybody 
uh, revisiting the results of the 2020 election and forget about the implications of all the catastrophic decisions that Joe Biden has made relative to Afghanistan and Ukraine and domestic energy production. Don't worry about all that. So, I mean, this is, I mean, Lee, have we, this is such a huge disaster. It's, it's difficult to even envision a solution, a resolution, a getting back to normal. And also the disaster goes deeper than they're admitting because they didn't even talk about the First Amendment implications of this. The fact that people were saying, and it's an absolute lie that it was Russian disinformation. Right. And then right. Biden declared war on Russia, basically. Oh, right. Think, yeah, think about that. This is that. so sinister. You know, that's a good point, Lee. I mean, that's what I mean. This is so sinister. I don't know that there's ever been, I, I can't think of anything worse, really. No, well, well, uh, maybe I got something worse for you. So let's oh. play the Tucker clip next. Have you seen this ad campaign in, involving the S and M teddy bear? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> okay, so you want something worse, Jason? This is it. Hit it. This is part of a larger trend, and the trend is this. Adults crossing the line, and it has always been a bright line, into deep involvement with the sexuality of children. That has always been, and must in a civilized society, always be the most forbidden thing. It's considered unacceptable even among prison inmates. But now it seems to be growing in its prevalence. Consider the latest ad for the clothing brand Balenciaga. This was just uploaded on Instagram. As you can see, the photo shoot they're using to sell their products features a young girl holding a teddy bear in a bondage outfit. Then, in case you missed the point, the photo shoot also contains this image. It shows several documents. Most of them aren't visible, but what you can see when you zoom in, and of course the point is that you see it, is a reference to a U.S. Supreme Court case called Ashcroft versus Free Speech Coalition. That case struck down a law against kitty porn. What is this? Well, it is what it appears to be. It's an endorsement of kitty porn, of child pornography. What else could it be? We wanted to know. So we reached out today to Balenciaga to get their explanation, and they didn't respond. So we're going to have to take that on face value and ask, where's the moral outrage? We have an entire industry in this country comprised of moral outrage merchants. If you've ever been on Twitter, you know what we mean. Truly, an entire sector of our economy is devoted to attacking people for falling short of the mark. And here is a high-end retailer promoting kitty porn in an ad on Instagram, and nobody notices. There's no boycott. There's no front-page New York Times editorial against it. And, of course, Instagram let the advertisement run, endorsing kitty porn. And, by the way, if you have an alternate explanation for what this was, let us know. A child with a teddy bear in a bondage outfit and a Supreme Court decision striking down a kitty porn law? Displayed on the table? What is that? Are we jumping to conclusions? Don't think so. It is what it appears to be. It's right in your face and no one's saying anything. Again, Instagram had no problem with this. Until Elon Musk took over Twitter, Twitter allowed hashtags that explicitly linked to child pornography. Nobody said anything because crimes against children are no big deal. It's thought crimes that are the real crimes. Content moderation is 
a hard task. Um, what we know is that Twitter and, and where the bulk of this information is right now, because that's where the biggest accounts like Matt Walsh um, and Libs of TikTok, again, where they sort of post this stuff. Um, what's being done? Well, two days ago, we know that Elon Musk, who owns Twitter now, he just reversed the policy that Twitter did have against targeting and harassment of LGBTQ people, against misgendering transgender people. So here you have people mutilating the genitals of children, running ads on Instagram promoting kitty porn, and there's Brandy Zadrozny on NBC News She's not attacking them. She's attacking anyone who notices and accusing them of attacking gay people. Once again, this has nothing to do with gay people. So what do you think, Jason? Well, you know what? I actually heard that segment about Brandy Zadrozny because somebody sent me that because Brandy Zadrozny targeted me and put out disinformation that was calculated to discredit me. I had, uh, on a road trip in 2021, gone to that hospital in Chattanooga where they showed a video of Tiffany Dover taking the Pfizer shot when it first came out. And just a few moments after she took it, she fainted. And then the hospital released a very strange video days later that was intended to show that she was okay, but only raised more questions. So I went to the hospital to speak to the public information officer and ask various questions. And the hospital just said, you know, get lost. And I concluded that we don't know what happened to Brand to uh, Tiffany Dover, the nurse. And I said, I don't think she's dead because I saw her in the video, but I don't know what happened to her. So then months and months later, maybe more than a year later, Brandy and NBC News came out with a podcast limited series called Tiffany Dover is Dead. Which, I mean, frankly, whether you're alive or dead, I don't think that's a title that demonstrates a lot of respect for the subject or her family. But it was all about smearing me. And uh, it seems like what she was able to discern from that is that Tiffany Dover is under some sort of NDA and doesn't want to speak about this incident, which is potentially supportive of the possibility that she was injured by the vaccine, that Pfizer paid her to not discuss the injury and that now she, she her, brandy also discovered that tiffany's family was building a new house which is also supportive of the notion that perhaps she's recently come into a lot of money so my conclusion now is that tiffany dover seems to have suffered some sort of an injury from the vaccine and has been paid to voluntarily agree to not discuss it brandy zadrozny made a thing called tiffany dover is dead that featured a lot of disparagement of me accused me of being a conspiracy theorist, supporting QAnon and various other things. And remember, Brandy Zadrodsny's name is the name that I used when I called Nina Jankowitz and said, hi, this is Jason Goodman. Has Brandy Zadrodsny mentioned me to you? And she said, Brandy hasn't, but maybe Ben did. So, so I'm saying, I allege, based on that evidence and other evidence that I've seen, Brandy Zadrodsny is part of a network of individuals who are involved with the creation of, and now they're trying to resuscitate it, save it. But these people have been involved in the creation and execution of the disinformation governance board. That's what Brandy Zadrodsny so, is. Let's go to a short commercial. Let's go to a short break. And when we come back, yeah. we'll talk more about that. Jason Goodman. Right. Let's go to a short break on the backstory. 
back on the backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM AM 1390. We're joined by Jason Goodman from Crowdsource the Truth on Truth Tuesday. This is the backstory. So, Jason, uh, I think one thing that's interesting is they seem to have created a new class of people who are not supposed to be criticized no matter what they say. Let me put it like this. (laughs) If QAnon had said young girls should have double mastectomies, if QAnon had said we heard from Q that he doesn't like boobs, and so all (laughs) teenage girls need to have double mastectomies, and people were going and getting their daughters with double mastectomies at the hospital. Do you think they would go nuts about that? They would. It's all they talk about, right? Who, who would go nuts? The news. Oh. The media. Well, yeah. Every. Uh, I mean, that's a difficult also, kind of trick question, though. But that's a bit of a trick question, though, because the mainstream news they want that. So they wouldn't go nuts. They'd say, oh, we like QAnon now. And at the same time, most of the people that I observe who follow QAnon seem to follow it blindly. So they might do it. But then again, at the same time, people who follow QAnon are opposed to the LGBTQ, specifically trans agenda that wants to do that to children. So that's a confusing trick question. But I know what you're saying. If something just said, oh, yeah, I I think they'd still attack it because it's abhorrent. And uh, furthermore, uh, they would just say there's no medical reason, whereas these people are doing it for medical reason. They would what's still the justify reason? it. What, what, what's the medical reason? They would reason? say they... that doctor Oh, that it's health care. It's health for the trans person. Right. right. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly yeah, right. I, I, they'd go crazy, obviously, because they're all about doing whatever they want to do. And stopping you from doing whatever they don't want you to do. They want control other other people over other people. My whole entire life, I have despised this notion of people attempting to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, uh, but it seems like there's a protected class. So apparently, if you criticize that procedure, that medical procedure for children, you're anti-gay. Right. Now, by the way, lots of gay people are not in favor of that. I know. Tucker's right. There's nothing inherently gay about it. Correct. Right? I mean, it has nothing to do with being gay. And I just think that the whole, you know, when it started out, it was... L-G-B, lesbian, gay, and bisexual. And that is all sort of talking about the same thing. Men who want sex with men, women who want sex with women, and people who go in between those two things. That's all related. Once you start wanting to, you know, homosexual men that I've spoken to about this don't want to remove their penises or permanently alter their bodies. They just want to have sex with other men. So it really is just a totally different I mean, it's like the uh, American Kennel and Airplane Association. What the hell does one thing have to do with the other? No, no, and it is. But the reason they're bringing it up now because of that horrible shooting in Colorado. Right. And 
we don't know the motive actually of the right. shooter. You can guess. I'm guessing he went in, into a gay bar and probably doesn't like shot gay people. people. Yeah. Right. But we don't know why specifically. Right. And furthermore, no one told him to go and shoot gay people. And no one I know on the right is in favor of it. Correct. Do you know anyone who said that was a great move? No, definitely not. So, now I'll tell you, the next clip I want to play, did you read the book? You said you would, but but I'm not going to hold you to it, because I said you probably don't want to. The, uh, the book, uh, Negroes to Hebrews, or Hebrews oh, to Negroes. Wait a minute, I think I ordered it, but it hasn't arrived yet, actually. It was the book or it was a DVD? Yeah, you just reminded me. I think I ordered it and haven't gotten it yet. Let me let me check here. So, we had the black Hebrew Israelites outside the Nets Stadium uh -huh. in Jersey, in Brooklyn. Oops, they're not in Jersey anymore. So, right. let's play that clip. Here's the Hebrew Israelites. Hit it. He tweeted a movie poster, and corporate media overreacted at the behest of people who, in my opinion, have grown tired of Irving taking independent actions that black men are not supposed to do. Sunday night, following the Grizzlies Nets game, a reporter asked Kyrie if he would take responsibility for the thousand or so Hebrew Israelites protesting outside the Barclays Center. Irving declined to answer the question. Irving did not caused the protest. Brooklyn Nets owner Joseph Tsai caused the protest when he suggested Irving, when he suspended Irving for tweeting a movie poster. Had Tsai and Adam Silver ignored Irving's harmless tweet and respected his free speech, there would be no controversy. Why didn't they ignore Irving? Because he could be a super spreader of independent thought. The puppet masters of popular culture don't want any of us, black or white, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, waking up to how they restrict the freedoms granted us by our creator. There was a group of about 100 people outside uh, wearing the shirt of a group called Israel United in Christ, a group labeled as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, they were outside in support of you and handing out anti-Semitic literature on the plaza of people walking by. And I was wondering if I can get your reaction to that. I didn't see it. Uh, what happened? There was a group outside? There was a group outside, 100, possibly more. They were wearing a shirt uh, called Israel United in okay. Christ. Uh, they're a group labeled yeah, as a hate group a, by the I think that's a conversation for uh, another day. I'm just here to focus on the game. You, you've said this whole time that you didn't know what kind of like, what basically what kind of voice you had. And But if these are the people that are out here in your name, do you feel like you have that's a consequence of what you've done? Uh, again, I'm just here to focus on the game. So, what do you think, Jason? You know, I th I really felt badly about uh, what was done to Kyrie Irving, and it's an interesting thing because I never heard of that guy before this started. I don't watch basketball. I don't care about basketball. I don't know him. I don't have any positive feelings or negative feelings. But I, 
I think I am a free speech absolutist because even if that guy wants to post something that I think is stupid or wrong or hateful, I want him to be able to post it because as, as long as he didn't say everybody should watch this movie and go kill Jewish people or something. And then I heard an interesting debate saying that even incitements to violence should be freedom of speech and that any infringement on the freedom of speech opens the door. I don't know if I agree with that. But I just think the guy should be allowed to say that. And anybody who hears it and thinks it's ignorant can now think he's ignorant and either choose to watch basketball or not. I don't think Kyrie Irving cares what each individual person thinks about him. And I, I, I've seen no evidence that Kyrie's a big spokesman for this group or anything like that. Right. I would say exactly. he he knows maybe a little more than you, Jason, about this subject. He could have watched probably, five minutes of that and thought that the poster was interesting or the I'm name saying. was funny. Yeah. yeah. Like, frankly, even the name Negroes to Hebrews, it's like, that's kind of funny. Tweet that. <laughs> what is that? How do you know what he meant by that? Let him do whatever he wants. And, and you know, no one asks him a question. No one says... So, Kyrie, what's interesting to you about that? Because he might tell them what's interesting to him about it. But right now, we don't know. We know other people's, what, what they find interesting about it. But they're putting words in Kyrie's mouth. Do you agree, Jason? They, well, not only do I agree, you've pointed out a very, that, that's absolutely it. Because the guy who's asking him, he, he's not saying like you just said, what do you think about that? When you ask somebody a question like that, it indicates that you're truly interested in the person because it's so open-ended. You're basically saying, hey, Kyrie, I'm here to interview you. I'm interested in your thoughts. What would you like to say? And then he just says whatever he wants. If you say, isn't it true that you're an anti-Semitic you know, black supremacist who tweeted out this movie because you want to kill Jewish people? And it's like, what kind of question is that? <laughs> You know, no, right. It's it's nuts. And a lot of it really gets down to I was thinking about this. A lot of our political problems are based on human nature, I think. And there's something about human beings that really wants. Do you agree with this, Jason, across the spectrum of humanity? People want to control other people. Some people do, not everyone. I think some people want to control other people, and most people just want whatever they want with no regard for how it affects other people. And someone who is truly a responsible member of society considers the safety and well-being of other people relative to their own desires. Like, I'd like to drive this fast car I have, 100 miles an hour, but... Because I'm on a public street and children could walk out at any moment, I don't want to take the risk that I might hurt someone. So I'll operate this vehicle responsibly. And then on the weekend, when I can go to the racetrack, I'll drive at 100 miles an hour. That's the way a thoughtful person acts. Most people who can't control their instinct or their impulses will just say, ooh, I like that gold necklace. I'll steal it. I want money. I'll beat this person up and take theirs. That's having no consideration for other people. And I think most people do that, not necessarily uh, leaning towards criminality, but they do whatever they want without really too much consideration for anybody else at all. 
And even when they know what they're doing is likely to harm or could harm somebody else. So uh, today also, let's change topic slightly. Today was Anthony Fauci's last day. Oh, and yeah. So let's play the cl clip. White House projects Fauci. On Earth so or working today, for the government? <laughs> no, he with uh, working for the government. Decades of service, they described it on the news. But let's right. play the <laughs> White House protecting Fauci. Hit it. I will not call on you if you yell. And also, you're taking time off the clock because Dr. Fauci has to leave in a couple of minutes. I I'm done. I'm not going. I'm not getting into a back and forth with you. Go ahead, Jeremy. Dr. Fauci, um, but, but she's only, she's only she's only not answering questions. You ask your question. You should allow her to answer. Jeremy, 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 it is not. It is not your turn. It is not your turn. You can't, you can't read the press briefing. You need to call from people across the room. She has a valid question. She's asked about the origin of COVID. I hear the question. Dr. Fauci is the best person. I, to I hear your question, but we're not doing this the way you want it. This is the disrespect of me. It is. I'm done. Simon, I'm done. I'm Simon, I'm done. I'm done with you right now. So when I first heard that clip, it sounds actually like a kindergarten teacher yeah, losing control yeah. over class. Do you agree, yep. Jason? Absolutely. That's the best press conference I've ever heard, Lee. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I've been in that room, and there is no way it's done. People yell questions all the time. That's not the first person to yell a question in the White House press briefing room. Does that make sense, Jason? Yeah. I mean, that's the way they're doing it all the time, right? Right. So deal with it. Yeah. And But she, she was not having it. And yeah. so, and Rod, what, do you know what, what the question, I couldn't quite hear. What was the guy trying to ask about? He was trying to ask Fauci about the origins of COVID-19, but uh, as you could hear, Karen uh, Jean-Pierre didn't want to didn't want that to go viral. Hmm. Right. And uh, but Fauci's not going to answer that. Obviously, why is she getting so and out of shape with that? Because Fauci not answering it is sort of embarrassing too. Right. Yeah, you she know, needs it to be a non-question. <laughs> and imagine how tricky her job is going to get when people start. That's why I played that entire CBS report. The thing is, the entire CBS report means her job is going to get a lot tougher in the press briefing room. Because I think some reporters are going to take the fact that CBS is now saying officially. And it's obvious that the Biden laptop is real. <laughs> so it's going to get a lot trickier in the press briefing room, not as much as it should be. But do you think the press will start to do their job a little bit, Jason? I think they will, not because they've had some epiphany 
but because they know when they're going to look extremely foolish for not covering something. And I think that might be the greatest significance of CBS putting that out is that that is one of the biggest mainstream things, basically admitting that we just can't not talk about this anymore. And uh, they're going to have to discuss it. But I have a question for you, Lee. Do you really think that anyone who is smart enough to have a job would honestly believe that the Hunter Biden laptop was not real? Do they honestly believe that or are they going along with the lie? Well, I think, you know, people don't really follow the news. People follow what they're interested in. So let's say you're a Democrat. Let's say you're a Democrat and you were told months ago that the Hunter Biden laptop is not real. Right. There's been almost nothing. This Don't press look any further. Take it face value and move right. on. So, right. And so I think people kind of went, well, that's a fake story. Right, right, as right. As part of the Russians. So and you're saying that there are people, people who actually do believe it. You know what? You might be right. Yeah, that's my take. You might be right about that. Because it's and just so hard seeing, for me to believe. <laughs> well, because... Right. And that's why I think the question for the press conferences, someone needs to ask, what is President Biden's reaction to having lied to the American people? President Biden clearly said something that wasn't true. He said he has no knowledge of Hunter Biden's business. That's pretty clear. Right. Yep. And the Biden laptop shows that Biden was lying. So I'd say hold him accountable for that lie. And point that out. What what would that be, though, holding him accountable? Uh, Impeach him? What? Well, no, I would say just in the press conference, ask her, Uh. was Biden's reaction to the fact that he lied to the American people? Does President Biden? <laughs> That's a good question. Right. That is an does excellent question, and I love the way you formed does, it. Does he feel badly for lying to the American people? And then let it lay out there. She can't deny mm-hmm. that he lied. She can, mm-hmm. of course, but not honestly. Right. Not with yes, a speck of honesty. Right. And so I want to see what she answers that. What say you, Jason Goodman? I don't think specks of honesty really have any impact on Corinne Jean-Pierre at all. She would say that's kind of I mean, she's almost she's cute in that she's lying and it's so obvious. And she's like got all of her makeup and her dresses or, you know, she's very obviously like Instagram model ready for that job and a different outfit every day and everything. But. Just everything she says is like the nicest way of saying the most obvious lie to a person. <laughs> and also, a note to Owl Killer, it's a good time to call back if you want to call back. Because we don't have Jim Hoft. Apparently oh, no. he's busy publishing one oh. of the biggest websites in the country. You know. Yeah, they, they break a lot busy. of good... A lot of good news on there. Well, so let's let's talk for a second, if we can, because you know what? This is appropriate. I really do like the Gateway Pundit. 
But like almost every other journalism thing, it's forced to rely on advertisers, and that creates a big problem. And there's a lot of people, Lee, who they kind of want the cake and eat it too. They like watching YouTube and not having to pay, and they want to hear insights from you and from me and other people. But Americans have been so lulled into this sense of here's all this free stuff we're going to advertise to you and program your brain subconsciously in ways that you won't understand or appreciate because the, the fun thing is free. Take all the TV shows you want to watch. And um, now, you know, Elon Musk is trying to make Twitter profitable and he realizes that it's controlled by all these advertisers. And, you know, when you and I do our show on Saturdays, we're not doing an advertiser-sponsored show. We do a direct-to-viewer sponsorship model, which is actually very similar to what Elon Musk is trying to do by monetizing the verification process, which I understand is coming back next week. The blue check. Yeah. They're going to have a more rigorous process. So what have you, be specific, what, what, what have you heard is coming, coming back? So they launched, remember, the blue check verification process where for $8 you could get verified. And I think the general understanding that people had was it wasn't just, you know, any malicious individual throw $8 and get verified as somebody that you're not. I think people generally understood that to mean that you were going to pay for a monthly membership to Twitter or subscription or whatever. And that as part of that payment process, you would provide your name, your address, your credit card, some sort of interaction with Twitter that would take some step to verify you. Even if, I, I mean, look, just taking someone's credit card information and verifying that the account name matches the name. Like if you want to make a Twitter account called Jason Goodman and you give them a credit card named Jason Goodman, you've already gotten to the first giant step of blocking widespread inauthentic account creation because right now it's free to create a hundred fake accounts and you can do a lot of damage with a hundred or a thousand or a thousand you know let's say you make a thousand fake accounts and put out a thousand different accounts saying that lee is great or jason is bad or whatever you can attempt to sway influence with a thousand free accounts now right away that campaign costs $8,000 per month. Fewer people will be able to do that. The next thing you do is you ask for the phone number, some verification email, any of the simple things that each of us have been through to verify an account. I'm not saying they're infallible. I'm saying using any one of them increases the security. Combining multiples starts to dramatically increase the security. And hopefully that's what they'll be doing when they reintroduce the blue check verification on November 29th, which Elon Musk has said they will do. But I've just soured on Twitter almost completely over several things that have occurred since Elon Musk bought it, not the least of which is his refusal to bring back Alex Jones for what he admits is his own personal preference that he just doesn't like Alex Jones and what he's done. So because there are other ways to access Alex Jones, you know, what's changed with Alex is nothing. And right. in, in other words, yesterday Alex was banned 
and today he's still banned. But yesterday, a bunch of people like James O'Keefe were banned and they're back. So looking at the positive things, I think if I wasn't willing to quit yesterday, if the lack of Alex Jones on Twitter kept me on Twitter yesterday, why would but I it's quit not that. today? No, that's not it. It's not the lack of Alex Jones on Twitter. It's the hypocrisy that Elon Musk exposed in himself. And again, Elon Musk owes me nothing relative to Twitter. I'm okay, just talking but, but about- why am I gonna, so, so what, he's a, he's a hypocrite. Why do I wanna leave Twitter? The value I get I'm not talking Twitter. about leaving. The, the other problem that we're having in this conversation is that you are an individual who is on Twitter and has a well-established Twitter account that's doing well, hang what on one sec, Jason. it needs to do. Let's I've take been a break. kicked off. And we, we'll and talk about it after me. the break. We're, sure. we're out of time right now. So let's talk about it after the break. The show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. This is Back Short. Empire of Lies. This is a show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, joined by special guest co-host Jason Goodman on Truth Tuesday. And this is the backstory. So we're joined this hour by the great Mark Corian from the Center for Immigration Studies. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. This is the backstory. So Jason, let's pick up the yeah. conversation. And yeah. let me point out, by the way, I got to apologize. I'm not, not feeling particularly well today. I was sick oh, no all problem. morning. So forgive me if I'm a little... Yeah, you know, out of it. You're, you're, you're totally fine, and I'm concerned about that, as always. But I just want to clarify one thing, because I'm not talking about leaving Twitter. I'm saying I've been wrongly ejected from Twitter, and Elon Musk showed up in April saying, I don't like all this censorship. We want to restore free speech. And I said, okay, I'm interested in that. I'd like to see that happen. Now he gets in there, and look, I'm not saying, oh, I bought a Tesla and I was tricked or whatever. He doesn't owe me anything. He buys Twitter. He owns it. He could burn the whole thing down, and I would have no say in the matter. I'm just saying, he's a person who presents himself on the public stage, and he says, hey, I'm going to make electric cars. You can drive around. I'll sell you one. Do you want to buy one? I'm going to make rockets. You can fly to Mars. You can get internet from a satellite. All this stuff that he's trying to make to convince people that he's a captain of industry and someone who should be respected and trusted in what he says he's going to do, and you're going to get into business buying things from, et cetera. So all I'm saying is when he comes out on the public stage and he says something like, I'm a free speech absolutist, and I really don't think that permanent bans make sense in all but the most egregious scenarios, I am sure if you go through Twitter, there are going to be people on there who have been to jail for 25 years for murdering somebody and get out, and they get onto Twitter. 
So that person's allowed to be on Twitter and Alex Jones is not because he said something or did something that Elon Musk disagrees with. Alex Jones did not shoot those children. Alex Jones is so not a member of the let, Taliban. Let, let me let me make the case that Elon, Elon, I think, I agree, he made the wrong decision, but is still a step forward. Let me make that case for a sec. At least we now know why. When Alex was banned before, I'm not saying Elon's got why I consider a good reason, but at least it's a reason. And I would say it's progress in the right direction. Even though Alex is still banned, it's progress. Maybe. Not for me, because I'm still banned. And what he's shown is that this is not something based on the law. This is not something based on, you know, anything other than the whims of Elon Musk. Well, that's the explanation he's given so far. But obviously, Alex lost a lawsuit on that case. So he could have a legal justification. But let me ask a broad question. Because I think people who are in politics take a narrow view sometimes. They look at it from their own perspective. Let me ask you broadly. Do you think Facebook or YouTube or Twitter is really in any trouble? Or do you think all those companies have such large user bases that they really aren't going anywhere? YouTube, I'm going to make the argument, a lot of people who deal with politics talk about censorship. We don't really matter, though, because YouTube's user base is so big with other stuff tech reviews and cat videos and whatever, YouTube is not reasonably going anywhere, I would say. YouTube is here to stay. Would you agree with that, Jason? Yeah, I mean, you know, you never know with these things because you look at anything like this, MySpace or whatever, who could have predicted? I mean, I'm sure anybody with any financial acumen could look at FTX and, you know, people like Charles and, you know, we're... We're seeing now people coming to the fore who are saying, yeah, the second I saw this guy, I knew he was a scam and I didn't want to go near him. But, uh, I mean, for for something like that to just completely disappear immediately, I don't know. I suppose anything like that could happen, but I agree with you. I don't think that's happening to YouTube. I think of all the things that you've just mentioned, Twitter is the one that's obviously in the most turmoil right now because, you know, if Elon Musk decides, you know what? This isn't making any money, and it's going to cost more to fix Twitter than it would be to crush Twitter and start again. You know, maybe this becomes the most expensive experiment in bringing your friends back onto Twitter. I don't think that'll happen either. I mean, Elon Musk has so much money, he could put another $44 billion on this. I'm not saying he would or that that would be smart, but it doesn't seem from a practical standpoint that it could go anywhere if its owner doesn't want it to. But at the same time, if the Federal Trade Commission starts investigating it, doing things, I mean, you know, the other story that's been really getting a lot of attention is that Tesla stock is down something like 55% for the year. And I think a fair argument could be made that people's impression of Elon Musk has been changing. And I think that people on the left have been, I, I would have to say that overall, 
from an Elon Musk public relations standpoint, at this point in time, this foray into Twitter, I think, has had a net negative effect on the public perception of Elon Musk, because I think that people who are left-leaning and might have been inclined to like him because of his work with electric cars and environmental stuff and whatever, are now feeling like, you know what, he's just this like bro culture, rape culture, billionaire guy who wants to let the alt-right onto Twitter and we don't like him anymore. And a lot of people, I think, who are more right-leaning are having the feelings that you and I are discussing that Elon Musk is really not a free speech absolutist and he's just a billionaire guy pandering to the ADL and all these other lefty things. So I think net net he's hurt himself from a PR standpoint to the, st the extent that spills over and hurts Tesla. 55% decline in the stock price is not very good. No. Now I would say if he let Alex back on he would have also suffered popularity hit. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yes, but I think that what he did had the effect. I mean, so he's he had said from the beginning that he wants the most extreme people on both sides to be upset with him. Or not that he wants that, but he expects that the changes that he makes will cause that. And so because that's happening, he now thinks he's having some success. But like, like I said... He could have, instead of saying, I had this personal experience that has nothing to do with Alex Jones, nothing to do with anything that Alex Jones has said, but in an almost implausible and very un-Elon Musk way, I'm going to act like a lefty crybaby, uh, sorry, right, we're on the radio, lefty crybaby and do something to somebody because my feelings are hurt about something definitely real but having nothing to do with Alex Jones, I just think he should have come out and said something like, look, right now we're moving through and we're dealing with thousands of people that have been banned. And Alex Jones is someone that we're looking at very carefully. And you need to understand that if we want everybody to be on Twitter, it needs to be able to function. And right now, all these platforms that Twitter relies on are saying, if we restore Alex Jones, they're going to do X, Y, and Z. So we're working through the technical, legal and political parameters of doing something like that stand by. He could have said that irrespective of what the honest thing is. And that would have at least been shrewd by coming out and saying now, my personal. Now, now Jason, because I got to get to calls, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's a great conversation. And I'll ask you a question after this. Sure. Let's take a call. 202-521-1320. Tarif. One of our community of callers here on the backstory. Tarif, what's on your mind? Hi, Tarif. For taking my call. How you doing? Thank you for taking my call, Lee. Um, first, I'd like to say free drilling signs. I have two comments. First comment is this. I'm still shadow banned. Garland Nixon do like he just got um, suspended. Um, Pepe Escobar, Scott Ritter, and others are still, um, what you say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, suspended. Um, um, I came across a thread. This is my second account of all, all North Bertrand had uh, tweeted out a thread of someone that was a, a close confidant on General de Gaulle. And basically, in a thread, he, he talks about the man. And the man's name was Alan Preferifit. 
Mr. B. General DeGaulle confident and he asked him about the um, death of Kennedy, right? And Kennedy basically in the long, I mean, excuse me, what Alan Perfit said that what Kennedy told him, what, excuse me, what General DeGaulle told him that he failed to believe that the uh, Kennedy assassination was a hit, was a hit on Kennedy from the, uh, the intelligence community. Because the same thing happened to him in 1961, in, I think in Algeria, right. where he had some generals turned against General de Gaulle. And it also, they have in other reports that the CIA actually wanted to kill General de Gaulle as well. Because General Was it, wasn't that in East Berlin? What, might, that might be wrong. I think they tried to kill him in Germany. Didn't they try to kill de Gaulle in Germany? And they, they, they tried to kill de Gaulle about several times, or maybe... Uh. Dozen times they try to kill him multiple times. So this and Tarif, I'm sorry to interrupt. Are you aware of a book called Farewell America? It was written by a French. I don't know if they had the DGRE back then, but it was a French intelligence guy who was friends with uh, Jackie, Jackie Kennedy, and she got this guy to do an investigation, and French intelligence determined that it was a hit. And this book contains a lot of details. Oh, what's wrong? Maybe not going out. Wait, we have another caller on. <laughs> Hello? Well, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm here. Um, they have a lot of people that wrote a lot of books on the Kennedy assassination. I know one person did some research and that Carlos Marcellus had a connection with the French Mafia. And they used some snipers, some criminals in France to come over there to carry out the hit. No, that was one. That was I remember somebody. Yeah, wrote. Corsican assassins, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and and, and yeah. So so by altering Bertrand, putting this out, they give light to what's going on with the assassination of our president. When they when they killed Kennedy, that changed a lot. A lot of things. That was like the rise of the deep state. That's when the deep state really became very powerful, and the you know, the the true killers behind Kennedy. Which this is like the um, the celebrating his assassination. What is today, right? So I'm not I'm not saying celebrating it, but the the people putting it out there that Kennedy was killed to keep this memory alive. And I'm glad that this long thread came out. And um, it, uh, for, it's for you and um, you can follow. Just go to uh, All Nord Boltran. I'm gonna put on the leak tweet for today. Y'all can take a lot. Look at it and read it. It's pretty deep of what General De Gaulle told his confidant about what he think happened. It's pretty deep. Okay, great call, Sharif. Thanks so yeah, much. Thanks. Let's thanks go to two hundred two five two one thirteen twenty. Ray, what's on your mind? Hello, Ray. Hey, this is hey, this is Brave. Oh, Brave. Hi. Oh, Brave. Brave. Sorry about that. No worries at all. We were misinformed. What's on your mind, Brave? I wanted to touch on the uh, CBS story with the Hunter Biden laptop thing. Um, that's, that that uh, that coverage from them is, is such a dodge, and I feel like it's a. Co- I mean, obviously it's a cover up, but I, I I think that it's not just about. And I keep on harping on this, but I don't think it's just about uh, whether the Hunter laptop was real and just about uh, by the Biden family's crimes, right? Those things are obviously uh, uh, huge in themselves. But um, the timeline uh, that they draw in that 
in that uh, story, um, I think it should be looked at, right? And I think I think that some time should be given into looking at the timeline of the the, the laptop of when it was left. Um, when it was um, when it was taken into custody by the FBI, right? When the letter came, when the letter by the intelligence officials came out saying that it was um, saying that it was uh, Russian disinformation. And the reason why I say these things is because um, it was clear the story was clearly suppressed. We all agree on that. But and, and most and most. Uh, most consideration is given to the election between um, between for, for the presidency, right? Uh, between uh, helping Biden out against Trump, right? But uh, the specific time frame that the, the, the laptop came out and when the story was really hot and really fiercely being suppressed before it even uh, hit most people's um, uh, radar was during the Democratic primaries. During that time, that's when the media was helping the, uh, Democratic, not the Democratic establishment, uh, the Bi- Biden and, and um, Obama and them. That's when the media was helping them to um, totally shut out the candidates that they didn't want, Tulsi Gabbard, Marion Williamson, um, and, and uh, of course, to, to belittle uh, Bernie. And, and, they, and they obviously stole the election from Bernie, right? They stole the primaries from Bernie. This information was being suppressed during that time. If you look at the timeline of, of when um, the, the – if, if you go back and look at the timeline of the laptop and the information that was coming out, the stories and all of that stuff, that was going on during the, um, during the Democratic primaries. Um, and not much energy is given to that. But that's the very, that's the jump off point for for the ele- election being stolen. You see what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. And I agree with you. I've said it many times. The initial target in the WikiLeaks jump was Bernie. Hillary Clinton took out Bernie Sanders in the primary, and that's what the WikiLeaks dump showed. Would you agree with that, Jason? Yep. Among other things. So I think Bray makes a very good point. They were going after other Democrats. This laptop not only would have helped Trump, but also everyone running against Biden. Who knows who would have got the nomination if this had come out in time? Do you agree with that, Jason? Not only that, I think that what we're seeing, everyone's like, oh, you know, this war happened because Biden is weak and Putin saw his moment to strike. No, no, that's not it at all. This is Biden's war. This is Biden trying to destroy everything and anyone who can link back to any criminal activity in Ukraine while simultaneously laundering tons of money. You know, every day we're hearing more about Sam Bankman-Fried having access to crypto wallets that only he had access to and having access to code within the, you know, the software structure of this FTX exchange that allowed him to do transactions that nobody else could look at. And now there's billions of dollars missing. And we know that the Digital Transformation Ministry of Ukraine was involved with this guy. And we know that Ukraine set up that Kuna cryptocurrency exchange, it sounds to me like billions of dollars got sent to Ukraine where there's chaos, there's there's corruption when there isn't a war, now there's chaos and corruption, records are going to be destroyed, accounting of anything going on right there is going to be virtually impossible to know what's going on. But if you can funnel millions and billions of dollars worth of weapons to somebody, you've just made them an instant billionaire. That stuff is better than cash. 
And uh, I'm noticing the media is already out in defensive mode, trying to say the FTX story involved Republicans, too. Maybe. Uh, and um, people like McConnell did get some money. But right. the big donations were clearly the Democrats. And that hitting simultaneously with CBS and other news sources admitting that the laptop is real. FTX is not going anywhere. Do you agree, Jason? It's a very, very, very big story. And everyone's saying, like, you know, this is the biggest corporate scandal in American history. And how could this have happened or whatever? You know, that's all wonderful for everybody to say, oh, you know, this is incompetence and blah, blah, blah. No, no, I'm sorry. Incompetence is somebody fell asleep in their car, went off the highway. This is a very sophisticated, very calculated, complicated scam. These kids that are involved, their parents are law professors and economics, you know, Stanford Law, MIT economics. These are not, you know, run of the mill dopes. And they're, as you said, giving all their money to Democrat campaigns. Now, okay, Republicans are involved as well. This is a very standard technique. And you see, what happens is somebody comes along and says something like, hey, I want to donate some money to Lee Stranahan. And maybe it's going to be $5,000 and my name starts with a G. Then it's on record that this person has given money to Lee Stranahan. Oh, what's going on with that money? If that person wants to implicate Lee Stranahan a year from now, step one is give Lee money for something and then raise a lot of questions about, oh, what's all this money that Lee is getting from over here? This is a very standard trick because you can sometimes approach someone who's a politician or a journalist or starting a journalism school or starting a YouTube channel or whatever, and they're conducting a legitimate fundraise and an illegitimate person gets involved so that they can, you know, dirty that person up. And later when Lee breaks out a story that says, wait a minute, this person's funding things illegally, that person says, oh yeah, you got some of the money. You're implicated in this too. That is what they're doing, in my opinion. And also, by the way, the story's got enough period aspects. Right. All ten, all ten people, stories like a little element of sex, you know, and intrigue. And all ten people in the company were living in Bermuda and apparently romantically involved. You know, so I you mean, you know that's what they're telling us. I wonder, I wonder if that's not added. I mean, maybe they are. And whether that's happening or not, that is either something that happens naturally, like maybe I, I've never experienced that, but I'm sure there are some people who just get into orgies, or perhaps if, as I say, this is a scheme that's set up where someone approaches these well, kids and says, hey, well, we want you to run the this. Orgy statement. Let me yeah. let me say this. I read an interview with a doctor, a psychologist who knew the people in uh-huh. Bermuda, and he said uh-huh. they were polyamorous, but they did not have sex very often. In other words, uh-huh. the, you may think that a lot of sex was going on, but apparently the doctor said that was not the case. And they have a weird form of polyamory where it's about competition with other people and rankings. 
you know, usually people who are into polyamory, and I know something about that, uh, do it because they oppose jealousy, right? Does uh, it make uh -huh. sense? They're sure. in favor of, they're opposed to jealousy. These people were in favor of jealousy, and they want to create an atmosphere where everyone was jealous of everyone. It's kind of weird. That's Toxic is what that is. That's called hatred. Yes, exactly right. And uh, and I, I think that doctor that you're talking about was a staff psychologist. He was an in-house psychologist that they hired, isn't it? Yes, I believe so. And what did he say about the guy doing methamphetamine all the time? What kind of doctor is this? This is like, you know, the fear and loathing in Las Vegas lawyer. <laughs> yeah, well... You know, amphetamines, I was talking last night on Twitter. I mentioned that amphetamines, like coffee, coffee is also a substance you can get addicted to. But people yeah. are okay with it because coffee addiction makes people more productive. So one thing about amphetamines, if you're an employer, you kind of like your employees on amphetamines. Does that make sense, Jason? But, but I mean, isn't it, it? But doesn't it evolve, like pretty soon cause them to become like super? Doesn't that last for like a week, and then you're a drug addict, and it crashes, and everything is ruined, or that you just do that indefinitely, keep taking amphetamines? Well, I, you know, obviously, some people are functioning amphetamine addicts. I mentioned last night two well-known novels published a novel in 1957, Ayn Rand and Jack Kerouac on the road and Alice Shrugged. And Ayn Rand and Jack Kerouac were both amphetamine users. Wow. And Ayn Rand and, seems uh, kind of calm when I see her speaking. But she, you know, she wrote a thousand page novel. Hmm. So where did she get the energy to do that? And the answer is amphetamines. She talked about it. So amphetamines if you can, you know, the doctor might be to control it. In other words, stay on the amphetamines to the point where you're productive. Are they legal or illegal? Are they, or there's different ones that are, so it's got to be legal, right? Is a doctor prescribing they're, it to this guy? They're quasi-legal. There's an aspect of it that's legal. You know, that's what happens with amphetamines. Doctors there's a use for them. it. But people abuse it. And then right. people keep taking them. Right. Right, right, right. But the, the purient aspect of this story is why I think it will stay in the papers for a long time. Not to mention it's the biggest financial loss in human history. That's the bigger deal for me. The purient, first of all, I look at the two of them and just even thinking about them having sex with each other is not something I want to think about. So for me, that aspect of the story is repugnant and not that believable, but that doesn't really matter. I think it's not going away because it's going to be, uh, you know what, though? You're kind of right, though. How many people when Enron was going on were really focused on it and even knew that it was happening versus the people who were just going to the movies and going to the basketball game and Enron what? Yeah, no, so I'll, I'll make an analogy to the movie industry, you know that, in fact, 
in movies, they find that certain things, violence, swearing, boobs, all yep. increase a movie's popularity. Right? <laughs> and I'm, and yes. if, if you see boobs sometimes and it seems gratuitous in the movie, it is. They put it in there. But am I right, Jason? Yeah, yeah. I just haven't heard too many other sentences that include, you know, violence and boobs. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. It's true. These it are elements that add to a movie's popularity. So I'm saying yes. with a news story, when you add the element of sex yeah. and not too explicitly, right. it helps. I would say Spice the Trump Tower story, the, uh, the Russiagate story was helped by the rumor about the P-tape. Well, not only you know, that, even though they say it was not didn't true. They, but didn't they also say that that New York Times Bud Sexton guy was supposedly, according to them, involved with um, the attorney? What was that Russian attorney who you, I can't remember her name, you, you interviewed her? Natalia Veselinskaya. Yeah, didn't they accuse the New York Times guy of having sex with her? I, I hadn't heard that. Okay, anyway. I believe Natalia's married, too, with kids. Not that yeah. that rules out anything. But, uh, so, this is a story. The underlying reason I think it's not going anywhere is because it's a real crime. But let's take a short break, and we'll talk about immigration after this break with the great Mark Kikorian from the Center for Immigration Studies. On what show, Jason? This is the backstory. Backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington, D.C., the capital of the Empire of Lies. Joining us now, great friend of the show and great guest, Mark Kikorian from the Center for Immigration Studies. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Doing very well, thank you. Glad to be here. So, Mark, we saw the GOP take over Congress. It was announced this week after the election. And they came out of the gate with some aggressive moves on the Biden investigation. So we all know that immigration is a big crisis in this country, not just a big crisis, but central in a lot of people's minds. So did the GOP do any moves on immigration in the first week? the GOP was announced to be in charge of Congress. Mark? Uh, well, they I mean, they're not actually in charge until the new Congress starts in January. So what they're doing now is saying what they're going to do. And one of the things, the clear thing that they've said right out front is they've demanded that um, the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, either resign and if he doesn't resign before they actually take power in January that uh, the speaker the future speaker McCarthy has said they're going to impeach him 
Um, you know, that's uh, for now, that's what they can do. The other things they're going to do is line up investigations of what's, you know, of what's actually going on. This administration has been almost unbelievably not transparent on immigration, which is no surprise. They're trying to hide what they're doing. Um, the other thing that we won't know what happens, and they're not really going to telegraph it ahead of time, is what immigration measures are they willing to stick into a funding bill that has to pass? Uh, and, you know, if they put in too much that the Biden administration won't tolerate, the Biden people, you know, Biden will veto it or the Senate won't pass it at all, maybe. Um, and then you could end up with a government shutdown fight. So that's that that'll be the most important stuff. And we're not going to know that until and they're not going to just advertise what it is, because that's a sort of backroom thing where you stick in things and hope the other side doesn't see it. But as far as the public stuff, impeaching Mayorkas, if he hasn't quit by then, is um, the most high profile and frankly, I think a pretty important point to make. Now, Mark, do you think they're going to look at all at Homeland Security in general? Because the department, which was formed after 9-11, seems to have had mission creep. It's originally was to combat terrorism and now immigration's under that. And now recently they've said things that indicate that looking at speech is part of what Homeland Security is doing. Do you think Homeland Security in general has outlived its purpose? Mark Corian, what do you think? Well, I mean, its purpose it hasn't outlived, but there has been mission creep, as you put it. Um, and, you know, there have been there's been talk of pulling all the immigration stuff out and out of other departments, too, like the Labor Department and Homeland Security and Justice and State and make a immigration department of immigration, a cabinet level department. That would make sense, honestly. But but it makes sense on paper. The problem is that both in this next Congress, where the Republicans will only control one house, uh, you know, one chamber of Congress, and even I would say next, you know, in, in two years, when knock on wood, there'll be a Republican president and a Republican Senate too, there's only so many things you can get done. And the border's a disaster, and there are a lot of things that have to get done immediately. Some of them Congress has to do. And my fear is that if they pull apart Homeland Security, they're going to be using up a lot of political capital, a lot of political credits on something that on paper I think really does, there is a good argument for it, but it's going to waste an opportunity to get some serious stuff done in plugging loopholes, cutting immigration numbers, et cetera. So um, there's going to be investigations of all this stuff you're talking about, you know, where they're trying to have speech police and what have you. Um, that's outside. It's not immigration. So that's not in my area, but they're definitely going to go after that. But it seems to me that it would make more sense to use the 
basically the limited opportunity, the limited bandwidth they have to make policy changes and appoint better people in Homeland Security rather than spending a lot of time and effort rearranging the organizational chart. Yeah, no, good point. Now, Mark, what do you think should be done? Because I've talked about the massive problems with immigration, and it actually is so massive that I don't have a quick, quick solution. Even the big problem with immigration now seems to me to be the people seeking asylum or claiming they're seeking asylum. Am I right? That, that has become the big problem in immigration? Yeah, absolutely. Asylum is the big weakness, both here and in Europe. It's basically the tool that um, anti-borders groups within their own country are using against their own countrymen, their own country's sovereignty. Uh, and frankly, the illegal aliens are just taking advantage of it. Uh, so that, there's a whole bunch of things with regard to asylum we need to change. For instance, under Trump, we had something called Remain in Mexico, where people who applied for asylum, um, you know, not even changing the rules, just using the rules we have now, and there need to be changes too, but using current rules, they can apply for asylum. They sneak across the border. But instead of just letting them go, as this administration is doing, have them cross the line and wait in Mexico until their hearing date comes up. Well, that worked incredibly well when Trump did it, because the whole point of most people making an asylum claim is not to get asylum. They know they don't qualify. They're just trying to get past the border patrol and let go into the country. Um, and so that one thing would be, I mean, there's a lot of other things that need to get done, but just doing that would be important. The problem, of course, is that once somebody sneaks across the border, unless they're Mexican, Mexico doesn't have to take them back. You know, it's like some third country couldn't tell us here, well, there's a bunch of people from Malta. You, They have to go to your country. It's like, no, they don't. Uh, Mexico had to agree <laughs> to take back those people. And it was only because Trump twisted their arms and got them to agree to it. Biden, on the other hand, is basically a patsy and is just getting used by the Mexicans and, frankly, all kinds of other people, too, whether it's Chinese or the Middle East. So, um a new administration can make real progress on that, but that's what they need to focus on, triage and stop the bleeding at the border first. Now, it seems to me that on the asylum issue, something, the reason I was saying it kind of defies a simple explanation is uh, Trump, when he ran in 2016, was build a wall. But it seems to me when you're dealing with people seeking asylum, building a wall does not solve that particular problem. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, it does not solve the problem. The wall is a tool. It helps the Border Patrol. There's no question about it. But if anyone who gets across is let go into the country because they say some magic words about asylum that they've been coached to say, then not only, the wall doesn't do any good. And let me just give you a couple examples. In... Um, on the Texas border, it's all river. It's the Rio Grande. But the Rio Grande kind of moves sometimes if there are floods. Uh, you have to have, you know, uh, flood control and stuff. So you can't build the wall right on the river. 
you have to build it a little bit back from it, sometimes 100, 200 yards away from the, the, the river. Well, guess what? If they get across the river and get onto dry land, they're in the United States. And under our law, the Border Patrol literally has to go through the fence and pick them up and bring them in to make their asylum claim, which is crazy. But, you know, it does show how the fence is useful. It's definitely useful, but it's not some kind of magic solution. And there's another thing, just one other example. I was just recently in Arizona, Yuma, Arizona. It's a little southwest corner of the state. And there's a good, serious wall there, one of those bollard walls. The problem is there's an Indian reservation. They don't want it there. They vetoed it. So the wall ends. I was there three o'clock in the morning at one point, a couple weeks ago, and people just walking around the end of the wall and turning themselves in. And the Border Patrol is like under Biden. They've got to, you know, take their pictures and process them and uh, then, then let them go. It's uh, so asylum policy has to be fixed, not just building a wall and somehow that's going to solve the problem. Now, you mentioned the concept of sovereignty, and I'm going to ask this in a provocative way. Isn't that just a fever dream of right-wing extremists? Do, are, are there any indications that the people behind this immigration policy are actually trying to get rid of American sovereignty? That sounds crazy. Mark, how does the concept of sovereignty fit into this whole discussion? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the Biden administration, uh, some people try to explain why the Biden administration is doing this. And Tucker, for instance, and other people say, well, it's because they want to import Democratic voters. And, you know, yeah. in the long run, maybe there's a little benefit from there. And I'm not even saying the Biden people are unaware of that, but that's not what's really going on. What The reason they have been pursuing this policy is because they don't believe the United States has the right to keep anybody out. It's an ideological principle that says American sovereignty is not does not extend to border control, if it exists at all. That if someone has some compelling story about how things are crummy in their homeland, we, you and I, through our elected representatives, do not have the right to say no. It's not even just a technical argument. It's a moral argument. They're, they see the immigration law as a whole as a kind of Jim Crow construct. And their goal is to ignore it to whatever extent they can get away with. So I was going to ask you that because when you said that they're trying to hide what they're doing, I detected the subtle implication that you had a hypothesis about a specific plan. And there it is. Yeah, I mean, it's not but it's not a plan. See, that's that's what I think. I mean, it's a it's a worldview. It's I don't think they fundamentally changing America. Right. This is Barack yeah, Obama, it, fundamental transformation of America. It is. But again, if no one were coming across the border, they'd still believe the same thing. You see what I mean? In other words, it's not they didn't get together and have a staff meeting on how can we destroy America? They got together and all believe the same thing which is that America has no right to say no. In fact, they don't believe in borders of, for any country. 
But, wow. you know, America, they, I, they do see as a kind of American exceptionalism, except it's a different kind. America is exceptionally bad. So it's exceptionally not allowed to keep anybody out. But, Mark, where does that end? Right. I mean, all these people who are voting for that, do they not have doors on their homes? Aren't they keeping people out of their homes? Is this country collectively our home? I mean, this has been done since the dawn of mankind, that we have different countries, different tribes, different families, different homes. Where did this idea come from? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know, it's a good question where it comes from. I mean, it's part of the Democratic Party never believed this before. I mean, they were always more liberal on immigration. But, uh, you know, even the Obama administration was more serious about border control than these guys are. I mean, the the Democratic Party has become captured by the most radical elements that in the old days, and old days, I mean, even just, you know, 10 years ago, would have been laughed off even among Democrats. Uh, and yet now that's the mainstream. And it's obviously not just borders. It's all the other stuff, castrating little boys and all that racialized nonsense, all that stuff. It's all part of the same package, but the part that I follow is immigration. And they basically are pushing the envelope everywhere they can to let to get as to let as many people get in as they can possibly get away. And do you believe and it's for this moral? Sorry. No, go ahead, Jason. Do you believe it's this moral reason that you've just described, or is there some more sinister underlying motive that they haven't yet revealed? No, no, I think it's this, I think it's a moral perspective. I mean, some of them, look, some of them hate America. I mean, there's no question about it. There's a lot of folks like that. I, I'm, I'm quite confident in the Biden administration. But that's, you know, I don't think Alejandro Mayorkas, the head of DHS, hates America. I don't think uh, Biden hates America. The, it's just that these guys see borders as kind of yesterday's news, an archaic, anachronistic idea that's, that's, you know, kind of smells bad and it's racist and we need to do away with it. And what so, that entails... So Mark, go ahead. And I, I think it's good we're bringing this up near Thanksgiving because you see it explicitly when they talk about the pilgrims. They... Talk about them as interlopers, them stealing land. And in the Southwest, California, Arizona, there are a lot of people who believe that it's the white people who are the invaders and that the land belongs to the Mexicans. Isn't that right? Ironically, it's only sort of progressive white faculty lounge people who actually believe that. Uh, I spent a, a good deal of time in South Texas, all the way down the border near where the Rio Grande comes into the um, Gulf of Mexico. And those counties down there are like 90, 95, 97 percent Hispanic. Everybody is Hispanic down there. None of those people believe that kind of nonsense. They're just regular patriotic Americans. It's just that they have a regional culture like Cajuns or something like that. And they all know Spanish and everything, but it's nothing to do with Mexico. They're all patriotic Americans. This stuff about the border crossed me and, you know, uh, all of that nonsense, that's all faculty lounge college leftists who believe that. Regular voters, there just isn't very much of that. Now, yeah, in I mean, fact, 
Because the people who left Mexico did so for a reason. The people who immigrated here to this country, there were things that they didn't like about Mexico. I'm not saying they hated it, but there are things that they preferred about this country. Isn't that right, Mark? Oh, yeah, of course. And, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of actual polling on the attitudes of Hispanic Americans. In fact, there was a book out recently. You might want to talk to this guy. It's called Political Migrants. Is The author's Jim Robb, R-O-B-B, and it's about the changing attitudes of Hispanic Americans. And they've done a lot of detailed polling. And their views on border control and excessive immigration and the rest of it aren't really that different from the population as a whole. Uh, it's this is it's their elites. It's the people in universities and these you know Soros-funded nonprofit groups. That's where you hear all of this stuff about how you know immigration is open borders are like reparations. You know we owe it to the people of the world because we're so bad. Um, no regular, there's not many regular voters who believe that nonsense. The problem is, is that I think a good deal of um, the resistance to actually enforcing the border, or let me put it this way, ordinary voters' willingness to vote for open borders people, a lot of that is driven by hatred of Donald Trump. In other words, if Trump wants tight borders, then they're going to be against it. I mean, if Trump said it's good to shower, a lot of these people would stop bathing. You know what I mean? So it's that kind of deranged reaction, I'm afraid, is one of the things we have to confront in trying to get people to understand how bad this border situation is. But, Mark, we were talking about the GOP Congress. What's your view of this new Congress? It seems to me that there's been a shift in Republican attitudes about immigration, and this Congress is reflective of that. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, now, the Republican Party still has a lot of squishes in it in Congress, and even Speaker or for Speaker-to-be uh, Kevin McCarthy isn't, you know, a real uh, hardcore guy on immigration, but he and other people understand that Trump changed things. The, the center of the party has moved much more hawkish on immigration. The problem they're going to have is that they have a small majority. I don't know how, I don't, you know, I don't think we know yet what the exact number is going to be. So they're going to have enough Republicans to actually elect the speaker and be the majority, but it's not going to be very many seats. And that's a hard thing to get anything done with because you're always going to have a few squishes who are not going to want to vote for something, you know, hawkish and hard line. So, um, yes, there's no question the Republican Party has moved much more hawkish on immigration. But, you know, it's going to take another Congress, at least, I think, before another election, especially if we get a president who really makes this a top line issue before we're going to be able to see some changes. And we need not just changes in executive actions and executive orders, stuff like that, which was all Trump could get done. We need actual changes that Congress passes. It's in law, because that way it's a lot stickier, a lot harder to undo. A lot of the stuff Trump did has already been reversed because it wasn't actually enacted by Congress. Now, here's a phrase I don't say often, but in fairness 
do Kevin McCarthy because, <laughs> you know, I don't like him. But I understand. McCarthy is under a lot of pressure. Years ago, I saw Dolores Huerta, who worked with Cesar Chavez for many years right. at Kevin McCarthy's office protesting. McCarthy gets a lot of protests against him. Isn't Kevin McCarthy under a tremendous amount of pressure, Mark Accordion? Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely. I mean, McCarthy's under pressure from both sides because he's got business interests that are pressuring him not to be too hardcore on enforcing immigration laws because they want cheap labor. He's got conservative immigration hawks pushing him, you know, in the direction I would like. He's got, uh, you know, obviously leftist activists. He doesn't care too much about that, but still they exert, they exert pressure on him. So, yes, uh, it's it's an unenviable job, quite frankly, uh, the, the job he's taken on. Look, I hope he does better than Paul Ryan or um, John Boehner did. Uh, but it's a hard job and, you know, uh, good luck to him. And also... He represents a, an area of California that does have a lot of ag, agriculture. Exactly. Yep. And so, so he, he he can't just thumb his nose at those guys. You know what I mean? He needs, uh, you know, he needs their support to get reelected. That's right. Jason, any more questions or comments from Mark Corian from the Center not, for Immigration Studies? Well, I've really enjoyed your insights, Mark, and I agree with uh, what you're saying. I mean, I, I hadn't thought of that notion that they don't think that America has the right to keep anybody out. But yep. I agree with you that what they're doing demonstrates that uh, they don't have the same sense of urgency in terms of keeping this country secure. I mean, they're letting terrorists in. It's ridiculous. Yep. And, you know, they think it's not a big deal. Let it all work out. You know, it's all that 9-11 stuff. That was really bad. But, you know, we overreacted. That's the way they think oh about God. it. And look, nothing's happened since. So what's the problem? You know, I'm not saying, you know, it's, see, they're not monsters. They don't want to import terrorists and kill people. They just are frivolous and unserious about what's going on in the world. And, you know, they shouldn't be in a position of political power. Unfortunately, they are. Yeah. Now, we played the clip recently on the show, but Chuck Schumer came out and recently said, basically, because there's a low birth rate among white people, that they're going to need to be replaced by the 11 million people we need to give amnesty to. Was that the <laughs> first time you've seen Schumer or any Democrat come out and say it, just lay it online. We need to give amnesty to 11 million people. Mark? Yeah, I mean, yes, it's the first time I've heard a major politician, uh, especially among Democrats, put it that way, except that it's not clear to me what he was talking about because those illegal immigrants, you know, it's 11 or 12, 13 million, probably 13 or more at this point, um, Although some of the higher numbers are are just not correct, but so whatever it is, uh, they're already here, uh, and their birth rates are you know going down just like everybody else's is. So what he's really saying is not just about amnesty. That's kind of almost a pretext for him. What he's really saying is he wants 
dramatically increased immigration in the future as well. Uh, and, you know, I mean, what are, look, he, he, he didn't say you know, white people aren't having kids. He said Americans aren't having kids. And it's not specifically white, all ethnic groups, everybody. In fact, almost everywhere in the world, birth rates are going down. Only in a few parts of the Islamic world are birth rates staying very high. Uh, but, you know, that's no solution, importing people and replacing them. I mean, you want to you want to supercharge this idea about replacement theory? Well, you know, he basically just said it. Um, and if birth rates are a problem, and I think they are, I mean, people aren't, don't feel that they can have the number of kids they want to have. I don't think the government should be telling you to have kids, but you, they should remove obstacles to having the number of kids you want to have. Immigration doesn't help that. Immigration just replaces people and says, okay, well, having babies is a job Americans won't do, so we'll import somebody else. What the heck kind of thing is that to say? So, yeah, no, good point. And what do you think Schumer was saying, Mark? Well, what I he was saying is know, that, but... well, I mean, what he was basically saying is we need massively increased immigration. He was the Gang of Eight bill, remember that back in 2013 that he was involved with, that would have amnestied the illegals. And the amnesty part gets everybody's attention, but it also would have doubled legal immigration, at least. Uh, and, you know, if that doesn't end up being enough, they'll want to double it again to, you know, I mean, they want it from 1 million to 2 million. If 2 million isn't enough, they'll want to increase it to 4 million a year. So that's the debate we need to have. What is the level of immigration that we want to have, and then how do we enforce it? And what Schumer was saying is we want millions and millions of more people coming into the United States. Do Americans want that? Nope. Let me ask you this, Mark, because so, you know what? A lot of people see Klaus Jason, Schwab at the- uh, Jason, we're out of yeah. time, unfortunately. Okay. Never Great mind. appearance by Mark Krikorian. CIS.org is where to find more. CIS.org. And great job co-hosting today, Jason Goodman. We'll be back tomorrow on a short week for a show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this has been The Backstory. Backstory.